0: Can you imagine if you started every day like that? Start every day with a hymn. That's not a bad way to go. What we're going to do today is some review from last time. We're still doing um, Module 2, Session 13. We'll do a little review and question and answer. We will do Angelology, a, a brief version. And then um, we'll take any questions you have on that as well. So we have kind of an easy day today, and, and uh, that'll be that'll be nice for all of us. So let's pray and then we'll get into our uh, the meat of our time this morning. Thank you, Father, for this Lord's Day. How excited we are to leave the things of the world behind, and I pray that we can. I pray, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would be so filled with Christ, with the goodness of your word, with the gospel, with the fellowship of the saints, with the, the blessedness of gathering together as the church. I pray that this would be a glorious day. Lord, that first we would worship you Uh, with our minds, getting our minds attuned to the things of God, with our hearts as we, we sing the glorious truths of the gospel back to you, with our very spirits, Lord, as we sense your presence and as we enjoy your presence through the gathered body of Christ. Let this be a blessed day for us and a glorifying day toward you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I know we talk about this a lot, but I, I think there is such a big difference in the life of a Christian between going to church on Sunday morning as a little chunk of your weekend and having a Lord's day. There is such a big difference, and we're not legalistic about that. We, you know, we we don't uh, take attendance on Sunday night and say, "Aha, these are the truly spiritual people." Um, we understand that, but there is a big difference, and I, I just I, I believe in that with all of my heart um, that we take a day. And let the Lord, let the Lord use the other six days. I have never preached a funeral where I, I said, "You know, this guy took the Lord's day every week and he starved to death because of it." So uh, that has never happened. So what we're going to do first is kind of go back to anthropology just a little bit. And I told you we would have a little time for um, any question and answer time on. Uh, beginning of life, end of life. You may have no more questions and we may be fine. We'll move on to angelology. So I want to start with that first, give you a chance to to, uh, discuss that. Remember we did uh, theology of the beginning of life, theology of the end of life. And in fact, to provoke discussion, uh, there's one thing I'm not sure why I didn't have this in my notes. Um, Probably when I was making my notes, I just didn't feel there would be time to talk about it. But i do want to I, I do want to talk about this. There is the issue of when we 're talking about beginning of life, we all believe that a human being is made of body and soul, an eternal soul. The body uh, will begin the process of dying pretty quickly after birth and then in the future be resurrected and so we understand those things. We even understand physically that um, at the moment of conception a life happens. So now here's the interesting question. Who makes the soul at the moment of conception? Uh, there, there's one belief system that says that all the souls uh, of all men were in heaven and God sends them. I don't think that's the case. There's no biblical basis for that. That's frankly a little more Buddhist than, than it is Christian. Um, so we would agree that, that life begins um, outside the fact that in the mind of God, everyone is already alive. We understand that. But the actual beginning of life begins at conception and we say, well, you know, the, we, we understand the physical process. What about the spiritual process? Who makes the soul? Well, there's basically two views and they really can complement one another. You can make a biblical case, of course, and I think we tend to default to this that, well, God made the soul. You know, the, the mom and dad made the body, but God made the soul. But you can also make a case um, because scripture views mankind so holistically as physical and spirit put together that there's there's not this great division, you can make the case physically or biblically that at the moment of conception, God gave to humanity, to a man and a woman, the power to make a human being, including the eternal soul. That's kind of a mind-boggling thought, but... Uh, No more mind-boggling than uh, a man and a woman making a person. And so, uh, just an interesting thought. I I don't think you want to be really dogmatic either way. We definitely give God credit uh, for, for making the soul, but we also give God credit for making trees, and yet he created the system whereby an acorn is planted and turns into a tree. Um, God didn't go and zap every tree into existence. He created the system by which trees are made. So just a little food for thought that at the moment of conception, it is entirely likely or possible at least that not only is the body made, but the soul is made all at the same time. And so you have this little bitty one cell that becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, becomes 16 and so forth. That little tiny person has a soul. At the moment of conception, how that happens, I, I think the closest we get is Psalm 139, where the psalmist says that you knit me together in my mother's womb. And that goes beyond the physical to the spiritual as well. So I just want to throw that thought out there, maybe get your, your juices going here. What thoughts do you have about, or questions, beginning of life, end of life, anything in anthropology before we move on to angelology? Challenges, snarky questions. Yes. Questions about, uh, cremation. Is, okay? C- is cremation okay? Um, I always have to defer to Scripture, and we don't we, we don't get guidance on what to do with a person's body. Um, th- that traditionally we bury bodies. Uh, cremation is used, frankly, all over the world in places where there aren't a lot of places to bury people. Um, there aren't a lot of biblical examples of cremation except in the context of judgment. So um, there, there isn't a thou shalt not cremate or thou shalt cremate or, or not. Um, so for me, it's a personal choice. This is just a, the human part of me. I know that I will be resurrected by the power of God. I just don't want to make it any harder on him than I have to i guess uh, that's just the way i'm thinking about it um so for, for some it's a matter of convenience a matter of even cost because um, it costs you're buying land when you buy a funeral plot and and so for some it's a cost issue, so there's no direct uh admonition one way or another uh, my My bigger concern is do we believe in the resurrection and I do and uh so You can have your ashes scattered over the town in which you were born, if you want, and the Lord will still bring you all together um, at the right time. So no specific admonition, it's a personal choice. So, yeah, Joe. Joe. It's uh, it's a great thought that we're made. In the, the question is: It sounds like you know we're made in the image of God. God is a triune God. We are uh, body, soul, and spirit, sort of in a in a uh, sort of mimicking the triune God, and that uh, our spirit was born dead in sin, and so our spirit must be made alive. Is that is that kind of the question? Okay. Well, that that's that's the debate between whether we are. Uh, called tripartite beings or bipartite pi- bipartite beings, meaning tri, meaning that we make a distinction between soul and spirit as two different things. Um, so that makes us a, a tripartite being, or uh, those that say we we have the visible physical self and we have the invisible self, soul or spirit, uh, so, and, and that those are uh, those are interchangeable. If we had to divide the scriptural evidence, soul and spirit are very often used interchangeably in scripture. So I think it becomes really hard to make a really, really hard distinction between soul and spirit. Um, You can make an argument for Maybe the soul is more your mind and how you think. The spirit is who you are. But we've never seen them divided. And how you think and who you are, are so interconnected that you can't really divide them. So I would probably tend a little bit toward the bipartite um, view uh, as to being made in the image of God. uh, The fact that God is Trinity and that we are uh, body, soul, and spirit, I would think that the better argument can be made that God is Trinity, and he made humanity male and female, he made them, that the most complete view of image of God is male and female. Uh, Not necessarily within one person, but within how God made all of humanity. Um, And I said this before, I even preached a message on Mother's Day once, on how the, the role of the mother is modeled after the Holy Spirit. Because that is the, very much the role that the Holy Spirit takes. And that's not a, that's not a gender statement at all. It's a, it's a statement of role. Um, so regarding the question, so is our, if our spirit and our soul are different, it was our spirit that was born into sin. I, I, don't, think that, um, I don't think that the original readers of the Bible would have made that distinction. I think they would have just said, "There's the there's the inner part of me. I know I have a soul. I know I have something inside that goes on forever and ever. Because if you've been around for more than a, a, a couple years on this earth, you know that everyone else that your body dies, and so humanity instinctively knows uh, that we have an inner part of ourselves. You have to be taught to be an atheist. By the way, you don't. Nobody's born being an atheist. You have to be taught um, to be an atheist. So are we made in the image of God?" It, uh, As a tripartite being, that's an interesting argument. I don't think you could push it really hard. Um, Are we born with our inner selves dead? Yes, absolutely. Doesn't mean we're dead in the sense that we can't experience life. We can't enjoy things. We can't interact at a spiritual level. It means that we're born dead in that we can't seek after God without his help. We can't undo our sin. We can't even acknowledge that we're sinners without his help. So that's that's the spiritual deadness. So was that did I get anywhere close? No, go ahead. I love those. The, the, the part that lives forever. Um, so in other words, I heard this was so simple. You know, one of the things I love about our beloved Dr. MacArthur is he can take a really big concept and narrow it down to one sentence. And the one sentence I remember him saying was that the moment you become saved, your spirit is ready for eternity. Now, your body is not Our bodies are going to die. They must be resurrected. So in a sense, when we talk about salvation, um, generally in our circles, when we talk about salvation, that is the moment that we have believed. We say that's salvation. Scripturally, salvation is more of a process. I, I don't mean you're slowly getting saved. I mean that the results of salvation take some time. Um, your spirit is immediately made ready for heaven. The the person that you are, the, the, the essence of your humanity, with or without a body. Like, Joe, whether you have your body with you or not, you will always be you. Are you actually done being saved? No. Because we haven't... Uh, you know, I see some gray hair in here. I see, uh, I see some some of you that are having trouble moving the way you used to. Our bodies are dying. So the consummation of salvation has yet to be. So step one, we are justified. That's instantaneous. That includes our regeneration. That includes our spirit being made ready for heaven. That's a beautiful thing because that guarantees now that the rest of the process of the consummation of salvation will be completed. Whether Paul tell the Philippian church? That I know that he who began a good work in you is faithful to finish it. Sort of in the context of finishing the work of the church, but that's, uh, it's, a, it's a good one to use. So um, the difference between a regenerate person and an unregenerate person is exactly that. The person who you are, regardless of whether you happen to be housed in this body or not, the person who you are has been made righteous, justified before God, therefore you are able to enter into his presence. The one who is unregenerate has not been made righteous, is not justified, therefore cannot enter into the presence of God except to enter into judgment. So that's the difference. And then then we all get caught up with our bodies, which will be great. Yes, Rebecca. So along with that, I think maybe the confusion is we say you have been made alive. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Well, the Book of Revelation says uh, basically warns don't don't participate in the second death. Mm-hmm. The second death happens at the Great White Throne Judgment when all the un- all the unregenerate of all the ages receive in their resurrected bodies a second death. Because uh, the book of Daniel says that, that God will resurrect all people, some to life and some to judgment. So every single human being will be resurrected in a body to experience either the eternal blessing of God or the eternal judgment of God. Now the debate is, at the great white throne judgment, the second death, when death and Hades are thrown into hell, does that mean that those people's bodies actually die again and they go to, go to hell a- as a spirit? At that point, I don't, think, I don't care one way or another. Just don't be there. Um, But it is called the second death. So when we say being made alive, I think we always have to put the prepositional phrase that Scripture includes we're made alive in Christ. That we are in Christ. Made alive doesn't have to do with existence. Made alive has to do with who you worship. And so a spiritually dead person, it doesn't mean they're not existing, obviously. It means that um, they never worship Christ. They um, people don't go to hell going, oh, no, what have I done? They will go to hell still shaking their fist at God. Um, th- there's, I think, some good evidence for that. So it's not as if people in hell are, are saying, oh, I should have repented. E- even the, the rich man in Luke, 7, in Luke 16, um, when he, we have this surreal scene of him talking to Abraham And there they are in in Hades, the waiting room for hell, or he is in Hades, this kind of waiting room for hell. He says, please send someone to go warn my family. But he doesn't say, can you help me? He doesn't say I was wrong. He doesn't say I was a sinner. He doesn't say any of that. He just doesn't want others to to be where he is only because he selfishly doesn't want uh, them to suffer. Has nothing to do with repentance. So when we say made alive, This has to do with having your spiritual eyes opened, your spiritual ears opened, your heart opened to be a worshiper of Christ, and you are spiritually alive in Christ. Um, Those who are not saved are outside of Christ, and that's that's as good as dead. In fact, um, I think annihilationism is such an attractive false doctrine because it feels more compassionate, doesn't it? that it wouldn't it be better to just not have ever existed? In fact, Job even said that when he was suffering. He said, it would have been better if I'd never been born. Jesus said, it would be better for you to have never been born than to suffer for all eternity for your sins. So, made alive, I think we always have to put the prepositional phrase in Christ after it. Does that help a little bit? Okay. I thought I saw a hand over here. Rowell. I didn't realize this was going to be like an ordination exam today. <laughs> you take him to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And you simply say, Yes, God created everything. You show him it says, God said it was good. 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 After the end of creation, God said it was very good. Then sin enters into the world. God already created within humanity the capacity to reproduce. And so now sin enters into the world and our federal head, the head of the human race, Adam, introduced sin to all of us. In Adam, all die. In Christ, then we have life. Um, Romans 5 talks about that. So the answer to that question was somebody says, well, if God created everything, how come he creates people with Down syndrome? Well, you go to the beginning of the Bible, then go to the end. First, you go to the beginning that Yes, He made all people, and some of them He made um, with these debilitating ailments because sin is in the world. But God didn't. Uh, you you can't, especially especially with an unbeliever, don't try to explain the intricacies of the sovereignty of God too much. Just say, God made everything good, but sin entered into the world. So now, when when bad things happen, when when uh, children are born with these horrible disabilities, then. Uh, that's because of sin. That's a horrible thing about sin. And 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 bring it to that person. How about you? You know, how old are you? Well, I'm 38. Well, look, you realize you're halfway through your life, right? You realize that you're you're done. But then you take him to the end of the Bible. That God, who made everything perfect in His perfect plan, allowed the entrance of sin into the world. Will restore. All who would come to faith in Jesus Christ and whatever disability they had, whatever difficulty they had will be made new. And then they might say, well, what about the person who can't understand, who's so mentally out of it uh, that, that, uh, that they can't make that choice? Well, we put them in the same category as an infant. We put them in the same category as one who does not know right from wrong. Uh, the Bible never uses the term age of accountability, but it does use the concept. Um, Isaiah talks about, Isaiah 7 talks about before he can know good from evil. That in other words, when a, when a one-year-old does something wicked, it's because he's one. It's not because he's made a choice to say, I'm gonna be a wicked human being. So this person who is born or becomes so debilitated that they can't possibly even have the mental functions to, to think about spiritual things, um, what, what are you gonna do with them? God's gonna save them. It's that simple. And, and there's, there's nobody, I think, who doesn't like that answer. If I can use a double negative, God's going to save them the same way that every single aborted baby in all of history is in heaven right now at this moment because God chose to do that. So um, short answer, why are there, if God created everything, why are there, are there people with illnesses and debilitating things? Because sin is in the world and sin is a problem. That's why you're dying Right now. So, who knew, who knew anthropology was so complex? Huh? Who else? We will get to angels here in a moment. Vanessa. Uh, can you talk about um, people that claim to have like an, uh, near death experience? Oh, I love talking about that. <laughs> people who claim to have near death experiences. Um, <clears throat> first of all, there is no tunnel, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. Um, the Bible says it is given to man to die once and then to face judgment. Hebrews nine. Um, there are so many different explanations for this. That uh, first of all, let's let's talk about the obvious explanation. Um, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Um, and so, is it possible for somebody to be so deprived of oxygen, or something that they they believe they had a near death experience? Sure. Is it possible for there to be demonic involvement in some sort of uh, deception? That uh, oh, this is a this is a wonderful thing. Absolutely, that is possible. Is it also possible to have many many other physical explanations for uh, what some would say is a near death experience? There's been all kinds of documented physical explanations. Um, now what about the people who say well I was on the operating table and I floated above and I saw myself maybe they did maybe they didn't what I do know is that we have information in scripture that is exactly no more and no less than God wants us to have Um, what I have noticed and why I'm always suspicious about near-death experiences um, first of all those who don't claim any sort of faith What they have just done is to say, to give some sort of assurance about death outside of Christ. So that's a demonic uh, deception. That is a false theology brought about by somebody who has had some sort of experience. And boy, people follow after that by the millions. But then there are those who claim to be Christians and they write books and they make millions of dollars and make movies off some sort of experience they say they had in heaven. And it boggles my mind um, that, that, Church-going people, and I'm not going to say Christians necessarily, just people who go to church, just run off that cliff. What's that animal that follows each other over the cliff? Sheep, lemmings, yeah, all the above. Um, Because instead of looking at what the Bible says, some bozo who says, well, I went to heaven for a while, you know, and Jesus has a crew cut and this and that, we just, we gravitate to that. For some reason. I don't know why that is. So Vanessa, for me, it's really simple. Somebody says they had an out-of-body experience or a near-death experience. I don't know what that is, but I know what the Bible says. And I know that, that uh, believing anything other than Scripture as an authority is a deception. Only Scripture is authoritative. I mean, I, I actually had this discussion and when I was writing our our book on heaven, somebody asked me, well, what if you had an out-of-body experience? Would you write this at the end chapter? And I said, no, because I don't know what that is. There's no way I can know what that is. It's the same thing when people say, well, I, I have a prophecy for you. Really? How do you know that? Just give me one objective means that you know this is from God. Nobody can ever answer that question. So uh, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, in fact, I, if I remember right, there's a, I think maybe the first chapter in our book, Preparing for Heaven, um, talks about out-of-body experiences and things like that. But it's, it, it's a huge deception. And it's big business, by the way. There, I think there's a new, there's a new movie on, uh, on Amazon Prime right now about a new out-of-body experience that some of these had. And, of course, amazing how you always have to write a book about it and list it as a movie and, and that sort of thing. Um, did, w- w- we know one person... I'll put it this way. We know one and a half people who have had what we might call an out-of-body experience. I'll do the half first. The half would be the first Christian martyr, Stephen. At the moment right before his death, he said that he saw the heavens open and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father, standing at the throne. That was right before his death. That was an accurate depiction of what he was seeing. How do we know that? Because it's recorded in scripture and it is stated to be accurate and it's theologically accurate. So we'll call that the half because he wasn't quite dead. The one that we know of would be um, the Apostle Paul said, I know a man. He didn't name himself. He didn't get movie rights. He didn't write a book. He just said, I know a man was taken up to the third heaven and some think that that was when he was stoned to death and or stoned and left for dead and maybe he was dead for a while who knows Um, but he didn't he didn't make a big deal out of it he didn't even name himself he just said I know a man so that's about as close as we get Uh, the one person that I want to focus on who has had the greatest out-of-body experience of all time is the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the only one that managed to raise himself from the dead and to tell us what he was doing when he was dead. What was he doing? He told the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. We might also uh, wonder about uh, 1 Timothy 3, that Jesus, first uh, Peter 3 rather, that Jesus went to proclaim victory to the spirits. Um, we would know those to be the spirits that were rebellious at the, time of, uh, at the time of Noah and the flood. But it never says in that text that that happened during his death. It makes sense that it did, but it never says that it happened then. So if I want to look at one guy who's had the greatest out-of-body experience of all time, I'm going to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he he didn't make any money off of it. He didn't, he didn't do that for some sort of uh, spectacular appeal. And he is the only and the singular and the sole objective source about life and death that we have. So... Vanessa, if you're having a conversation with someone, they say, well, what about this guy? You know, I mean, he died and he said, you know, he went to a place that looks like Iceland. Okay. Does that mean that's gonna happen to you? Are you banking your eternity on the fact that one guy said this happened to him? I'm banking my eternity on the word of God, not on what one guy said. And who knows why they're doing that too. Uh, You've read read, uh, um, the story of, uh, the, the little boy uh, who supposedly went to heaven and they they proved so many times over that all the things he supposedly saw were things that he already knew and yet people are still buying those the, that book what's that book called again uh the little boy uh well anyway uh, heaven is for real yeah that's right um Heaven is for real. That's true. But we know that because of the word of God, not because of a little boy who took knowledge he had previously. Um, this is why I don't go into Christian bookstores anymore. The, the last time I went into a, a family Christian store and they saw and I saw paintings of Jesus um, as depicted by, what's, it, what's the what little boy's name, Cody? Nope, I'm done. <laughs> I'm not going in there anymore. Um, because we have a painting of Jesus. It is in the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have exactly the portrait of the Christ we need. So, so take him to the Word of God. Say, so, I don't know about that guy. Maybe he had indigestion. Maybe his anesthesiologist fell asleep at the wheel. We don't know what happened, but we do know what the Word of God says. All right, that was too long of an answer. Sorry, Vanessa. What else on anthropology? We still have time to get to angels. Oh, wow. Okay, one and then two and then we'll be done. Done. so the the question is you have a you have a believer who has been a wonderful believer um, and then at the end of life you have neurological issues or medication issues or anything that, that just changes their personality and makes them different makes them makes them odd or difficult or strange or, or really hard to be around I and mean, that's my own that's my only prayer for my old age i don't care where i end up i just ask the lord don't let me be a jerk i just don't i don't want that to happen i don't want my kids to go wow i liked you better when you were younger um i want to be softer and kinder um the, the spiritual answer to that is a warning to everyone else and the warning is from ecclesiastes 12 remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come And the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. So in other words, it begins and then the rest of this part of the chapter describes old age. And so the warning is remember your creator in the days of your youth. So uh, when somebody says, well, you know, I can always, I can always become a Christian later. no, not when you have Alzheimer's unless the Lord intervenes. From a human standpoint, you can't make that decision anymore. So the warning is: remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Now we stand on the doctrine of justification. Our salvation is not uh, is not brought about by our increasingly good behavior. If that were the case, then when somebody is older and displaying those difficulties, then we begin to doubt their salvation. Justification is a legal standing before God, regardless of whether your brain gets scrambled or not. So uh, we stand on that. We ask for grace. We ask for mercy. Um, We try to still help the older person and and say, you remember this is, you know, we want to go through this in a Christ-like fashion and you're being really grumpy right now. Or if they they have Alzheimer's and they don't remember much, then you just, you show grace. You show the grace that you would want. Um, So things can change. You know, I my grandmother on my dad's side, my dad's mom, her whole life, in fact, my dad said I took after her, she was a worrier. She just worried about everything and, and she loved the Lord, but she just could never get rid of that anxiety. And then she had some medical issue happen, like a little mini stroke or something. And from then on, she was like smooth sailing. She was so easygoing, never worried about anything. So she had a positive result. Um, On the other hand, my grandfather on my mom's side, who was a pastor for 43 years, both my grandfathers were pastors, but this one, he he was a gentle man. He He was a kind soul. He was a big man. He was six foot six inches tall. And when he was in the hospital at the age of 86, because he jumped out of a tree, that's the way he was, he jumped out of a tree, broke his hip, got pneumonia in the hospital. They put him on medication that messed his brain up. And nurses walk in because he's been chained to his bed. He's ripped the, the, the handles off the bed. And he's standing, stark naked, on his bed, swinging this thing around, going, come on, I'll take any of you on. That wasn't my grandfather. That wasn't my grandfather at all. Um, so what do you do? Well, first you duck and get out of the way. <laughs> and then you just show grace. And we stand on Justification. We stand on justification, because the end of life is not pretty, and we picture how will that person be in a moment. And I know it's tempting. Lord, bring him home now. Well, that's a great prayer. If I'm acting like that, please pray that for me. You know, if we, take me on a walk by the Grand Canyon. Just, oh, <laughs> there he goes. It's mercy. Steve Swartz preaches euthanasia. That's going to be on the internet. Yes. And then Adrian had a question as well. Soul sleep. Um, so soul sleep is, is uh, big in Seventh-day Adventism. And soul sleep is the idea that, and we'll take soteriology salvation out of the picture for a minute. Soul sleep is the idea that when a human being dies, that their soul goes to sleep. And then at some later point at the end of all things, then God wakes you up. That actually comes from scripture. It comes from the Bible because uh, Paul talks about those who have fallen asleep. I do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. That's a classic case of not understanding figurative language in Scripture. There, there are a lot of really good hermeneutic rules and understandings of how to understand figurative metaphorical language. And, and basically, you know something is figurative or metaphorical if it's, if it's not possible in reality. Uh, our classic example is that the, the trees of the field clap their hands. Well, that's a metaphor, for all of creation being excited at renewal at the, end of, uh, at the end of time. The soul doesn't ever sleep. That's not possible. That, that's, not, that's not even in the realm of reality. The reason it's a metaphor that Paul uses is because it's a comforting metaphor. I mean, how would it be if, um, for example, instead of when Paul says, uh, we shall We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What is he talking about? He's talking about the rapture of the church, that we shall not all die. Um, He doesn't say we shall not all come to a horrible, fiery end, but we shall all be changed. Because for the Christian, dying is like closing your eyes. It's like taking a nap. It's a metaphor to say this is not something to dread. It's something to look forward to. Death is our friend. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15 basically is a big at death. Where's your sting? Where's your, where's your victory? So the metaphor of sleep then becomes misused as a literal idea of, well, the soul goes to sleep. Now, one of the reasons that we would steer away from that is that it's associated with a doctrinal system that also says you're saved by your works. Your soul goes to sleep when you die, and then God rewards you for all your good works. So anytime there's a major belief such as soul sleep associated with heresy, then we're going to reject them both. Um, Is there scripture, though, that says that uh, that the soul doesn't sleep? Absolutely. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed to man to die once and then to face judgment. There's nothing in between. Um, the apostle paul from a christian standpoint said it is better to depart and to be with christ to be out of the body is to be with christ there's no in between there is not a single scripture that talks about sleeping in terms of being unconscious for some period of time between your life or between the end of your life and facing god so there is no scripture that shows that very good question okay we've had a lot of fun we let's do angels real quick I've had fun. I don't know if you have, but angelology, just kind of a broad overview. And I, I, I would love to take a lot more time on this, but the angels wouldn't want us to. <laughs> they would rather we focus on Christ. So what is an angel? An angel is a created spirit being with moral and intellectual ability, but no physical body. Do they take physical form at, at times? Oh, well, they did in, uh, in Genesis 18 and 19. Uh, two of them, alongside uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Angel of the Lord, um, but they have no physical body; they're not—they're spiritual beings. Some of the terms that are used of angels: the host of heaven. Uh, host of heaven has a military connotation. Uh, it, It's—you could easily say the armies of heaven. It's the same as the host. Um, I remember being a child and the host of heaven all I could picture was the person at the front of the restaurant saying how many and giving out that's what I thought a host was um, but the host just means there's so many that you can't count them and so it's the army of, of heaven um, we sing in the mighty fortress is our God Lord Sabaoth his name. That's not Lord of the Sabbath, that's Lord of the hosts, Sabaoth. It is Lord of the armies. So when you sing that now, it's the one Hebrew word you should know. The Lord of the armies is his name. They're called the sons of God. Why? Because they're created by God. They're called the morning stars, Job 1, Job 38. Sometimes they're called watchers. In Daniel chapter 4, and in Hebrews 1.14, they're called ministering spirits. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? I don't know when I memorized that. It just stuck in my brain at one point. They're ministering spirits. They're not called angels, but angels are the only viable option. Um, there's, there's three types of angels listed in Scripture, maybe two and one that, is, that falls in either category. There are the cherubim. We see them at the Garden of Eden. We see them on the Ark of the Covenant. Um, I've talked about this before. I'll just give a 30-second recap. All through Scripture, beginning to end, cherubim are always associated with the throne of God. They're the attendants at the throne. That's why uh, there are paintings and sculptures that that, that were to be put into the temple. Paintings and sculptures of what? Of the cherubim. Because the temple is the throne of God on earth. The cherubim were in the Garden of Eden. Who was the head cherub? You remember? It was Satan. It was Satan. That's why it was such a horrible thing that he would betray God. He was there to guard the throne. And the Garden of Eden was the throne room of God on earth, so to speak. So they're the cherubim. They're associated with the throne. There are the seraphim. Isaiah 6 It just means burning ones. And they're more associated with intense worship. They're the ones who say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come over and over again. And so they're the seraphim. There's a potential third class, but they could be cherubim or seraphim. And those are the ones called living creatures, Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4. Uh, the descriptions of the living creatures in Ezekiel one and Revelation four are so similar that they're almost certainly the same thing doesn 't say they're cherubim doesn 't say they 're seraphims or either they 're a third class or they 're one of one of those other two. but those are the ministering spirits so let 's just do some basic facts and i 've probably already done some of these just by accident. basic facts oh okay there 's the cherubim, seraphim and living creatures. I just told you that part. Basic facts, most likely they were made on the first day of creation. Job 38 6 and 7, why were they made? And we would say they were made first, before everything else. How do we know this? Job 38, on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So We can talk about creation from the standpoint of reading about it. The angels can talk about creation from the standpoint of having seen it and watched it. And I don't know about you. I think if I were witnessing the sudden creation of the planet Saturn, I would be shouting for joy too. And I don't know if God stopped long enough to say, watch this. As he was creating things. But there was a divine glorious grandstand. With all the heavenly angels. Watching creation. So they were most likely made on. The first day of creation. Some might say they were made before the first day of creation. Doesn't make any difference for for us. Because time starts at day one. So it doesn't make any difference. They are non-producing. Matthew 22. Says that. In the new heavens and the new earth. All of us will be like the angels neither marrying nor giving the marriage, not reproducing. They are immortal like us. They will always live. They will always be. They are personal beings. They're not just forces. They are personal. They, they can worship. They can speak. First Peter 1.12 says that they're curious. First Peter 1.12 talks about the things of salvation, things in which the angels long to look. Because while an angel may be perfect, an angel will never know what it's like to be redeemed. They'll never know. They can rejoice. And so they're personal beings. They're spirit beings. And yet they can manifest physically at God's permission. And we would emphasize God's permission because Genesis chapter 6 talks about the sons of God, these are angels, going to the daughters of men. This is almost certainly the fallen angels, demons now who have manifested physically to go to the daughters of men, and they are making babies. And these are the gener- this is the generation that God wiped out with the flood. This this uh, demonic race of beings, so to speak, and that's a whole other uh, topic of discussion. Um, but very clearly, they stepped outside of God's boundaries. What happened to them? God sent them to the abyss. They are the one that's different than hell, different thing. They are the ones that 1 Peter 3 says that Christ at some point, maybe while he was dead, maybe some other point, went and proclaimed victory to the spirits who were held captive. So they're spirit beings. They are powerful. Psalm 103, verse 20. Uh, you can also read Daniel chapter 10. They battle. They are, they are warriors they're powerful they're arranged in a hierarchy colossians 1 16 speaks of this hierarchy jude verse 6 and verse 9 so they have they have uh, uh, commanders and followers so to speak and then we have the division we've already made reference to this of the holy angels first timothy 5 21 versus the fallen angels 2 Peter 2, Jude 6, Revelation 9. We know that the fallen angels number about one third of all created angels. Thus we would say there are double the number of holy angels there are fallen angels. What do they do? Their tasks. They rejoice. Isn't that a great job? They rejoice at creation. Job 38:7, they guard they guarded Eden. They're the guardian angels, uh, cherubs. They visited patriarchs, Genesis 18 and 19. They protect Israel, Daniel 10, um, also chapters 8 through 12. They were also, and this is very unusual because we don't know how, but Galatians 3 and Acts 7 tell us that angels were involved in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. We're just not told how. I, I don't know if they were flying around or if they were the ones making the thunder and the smoke. I don't know, but they were involved at some level. So they rejoice, they guard, they visit, they protect Israel, they, they give the law. What else do they do? They deliver messages. Daniel 4, Daniel 9, Revelation 1, Acts 12. They were obviously instrumental in delivering the message, the revelation concerning uh, the, the birth and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. You know, at the major milestones of the life of Christ, his birth, Obviously, his resurrection and his ascension, angels came to explain what was happening and to give revelation and give confirmation that what was happening actually was happening. Angels strengthened Christ in the wilderness. They strengthened Christ at Gethsemane, Matthew 4, Luke 22. And they are part of the army of Christ at his second coming. Matthew 25, 31. We would make the case from Revelation 19 that the other part of the army are all the resurrected saints of the church age coming back with them. So they have uh, they have quite a few duties. And let's specify a little bit more, what do they do with believers? Hebrews 1.14, they're sent to serve. They're sent to serve. We're not told how they serve you, um, but they do. <clears throat> they... they um, they do wonderful things the very first time I drove over the grapevine I was 17 years old I didn't even live in California at the time um, I drove over the grapevine and it, I think it was way different than it is now and I got behind the, the, we're, there was a section at the time that was just one lane and I got behind uh, somebody who decided that retiring means driving 20 miles an hour in an RV and I kept trying to pass, kept trying to pass, kept trying to pass, never could get around this guy. And I was 17 and irritated and, and finally got around him and all the traffic stopped completely. And I got out of the car and I walked down to see two semis completely wrapped around each other. And to this day, I'm convinced I would have been a part of that if some angel hadn't said, all right, old guy, slow down because we're gonna slow this kid down. I believe in angels. I believe that God uses them. Um, now what about when something doesn't go right well then that was God's plan but they, they, they are sent to serve and I think that's important to understand they're sent to protect Psalm ninety-one, eleven. does that mean they protect perfectly only when God tells them to God in his sovereignty lets things happen to believers but when it's time to protect they're his means um, for doing that they conduct departed spirits now, we're, we're going to base this on one verse, and so I'm not going to be super dogmatic about this, but Luke 16:22 speaks of a, a poor man named, uh, named Lazarus, and not, not the same Lazarus who was raised from the dead, but that's, that's a whole other issue because Jesus had a reason for using that name, but that he died and the angels came and took him. So I think if he did that with one, he likely does that with others. And, and I have no problem saying that. When I'm speaking to somebody who is dying, I tell them, you know that you're going to see angels, and they're going to take you straight to Christ. They observe Christian experiences. Isn't it funny that we get more embarrassed thinking about what the angels might see than about what God might see? It's not as if they have to report to God. God already knows. But they do observe Christian experiences. 1 Corinthians 4.9, 1 Peter 1.12, they will gather the elect at the end, Matthew 24, 31. Uh, that is not speaking of the rapture of the church. That is speaking of gathering the living survivors who are saved at the end of the great tribulation. These are tribulation saints. They will be gathered by the angels. So they have, they have great and tremendous uh, jobs to do. Let me do one last thing and we'll be done. Just take a moment. Satan's in, Satan and demons, just some key facts for you. And I did a whole series earlier this year on Satan and his schemes, so this should be review for you. Satan's name is not Lucifer. It's based on a Latin translation of Star, Son of Dawn, in Isaiah fourteen twelve. It's not a proper name. And so if you want to refer to him as Lucifer, that's fine. That's not a proper name. Um, that's like calling your, your son, my son. Well, great, yeah, he's my son, but he's not, that's not his proper name. His name is, is Satan. Satan. The accuser. A Christian cannot be under the control of a demon. He can't be possessed. He can't be taken over. Second uh, Corinthians 5.17 says, We are a new creation in Christ. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So, a Christian cannot be under the control of a demon. Can a Christian invite demonic powers? Well, 1 um, Timothy 4 says that the doctrine of demons can harm a church. And so there can be an invitation through disobedience, through false doctrine, through believing everything you hear. And so we can't be demon-possessed, but you can be uh, certainly through your disobedience, you can invite the invite the harm. We would also say to not major on demons, Sins are not always, as they say in the charismatic church, they're not always, oh, this is a spirit of lust. No, it's not a spirit of lust. It's your lust. Don't blame a demon for your sin. Um, call habitual sins what they are. We acknowledge the presence and the activity of demons, but we don't dabble in anything occult related. In the New Testament, idolatry is said to be demon worship. And so we're we're careful. First Corinthians 10, Ephesians 5, Galatians 5. Idolatry is demon worship. I don't have this in here, but I'm going to say this here. Never in the New Testament is a Christian commanded to cast a demon out of somebody. If you're going, man, I don't know how to do that. What do I do if some guy's, you know, throwing a Buick at me? Uh, well, there must be a demon. The answer is to demon-possessed or oppressed people is always the same. Could I tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. So you don't need any magic tricks or anything like that to cast demons out. Just tell them the gospel. And if they're throwing a Buick at you, once again, duck, and then say, can I tell you the gospel? I have personally witnessed a nine-year-old girl uh, screaming, and throwing around two 250 pound men i saw it with my own eyes that can only be explained by demonic power the same nine-year-old girl sat in in my office and i said before you throw me around can i read the bible to you and she said no i read the bible to her anyway and she was quiet I don't know what was going on, but she was this big and she was, she was harming large men. I don't know, but I do know this. The gospel is the answer. The gospel is the only answer. There's no, there's no special Christians that have powers that you don't. You have the power. It is the gospel. Just read the Bible. Our focus is on following Christ. So I don't preach a lot about demons. I, I find it depressing. Why, why preach on demons? Doing Satan in the schemes for 10 weeks was bad enough, but we just needed to have that foundation. Our protection is found in Christ, is found in the armor of Ephesians 6. We resist the powers of evil, we trust God's power. You know, I grew up in a, in a spiritual system by which uh, my aunts and uncles were all terrified of demons and they told all these stories about people in churches being oppressed and things like that, but they were all charismatic. And so, of course, weird things were happening there because they invited it. And so I grew up terrified of demons. And the first time I heard that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, that was freeing for me. No more power over me because Christ has power over me. We don't underestimate Satan's power and we don't overestimate Satan's power. I I find that in our circles, in Bible church circles, we tend to underestimate Satan's power. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be fearful, neither do we want to be arrogant. Our conclusion is that Romans 8.31 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Satan's power is very real. Don't mess with sin, because he will nail you. Um, don't mess with idolatry, he will nail you. And so we walk a straight and very fine line, and that is we cling hard to the word of God, we cling to the gospel, and then we go home. So just a few little things there about angelology, and we'll, next time around, if you want to ask any more questions, we can. That's about all I think you need to know, as far as I'm concerned. Let's pray, then we'll be done. Thank you, Father, for this time. We've enjoyed the word of God. We've enjoyed the fellowship. Lord, now as we prepare to come before you with fear, trembling, joy, anticipation to sing of our faith and to hear your word. We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased with the worship that we come to offer. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for your great questions. That was, that was enjoyable. Thank you.